Father, we are grateful for your loving kindness and mercy in sending forth Christ at the perfect time, coming into this world, a world that was created by him, sustained by him, known by him, and then he came as a baby, humbly taking flesh upon himself, fully God and fully man, the king of Israel and the King of Kings, we thank you that we get to worship your kindness, your love, your nearness, your sacrifice, your power, your resurrection, your ascension, your rule and reign. To God be the glory. Father, today we want to pray for the friends of ours that sent us to help plant this church Years ago, Crossway Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. God, we thank you for their heart for the mission and them sending us out as a team 11 and a half years ago. God, we thank you for um, the way they are wanting to be more and more intentional in their city. And as they're asking for prayer this year, just specifically how to steward resources and money in their building and time to, to bless the community with gospel mission. Guys, they're starting several community groups in January. They just need grace. So be with those new leaders. Be with those community groups. Give them uh, grace and unity and friendship as it takes time to build together. We know that a new community group does not easily gel day one. And so we pray for grace for those community groups. God, we pray for J.J. Peitch, one of the pastors there, and his wife Bethany as they recently had Theo uh, within the last few weeks, their baby who's having lung issues. Uh, Lord, we pray for healing for little Theo. We pray for this family that has to be quarantined for six months because Theo can't handle sickness. Lord, be with the church as they are without J.J. Be with that family as they love on their little guy. Be with the other siblings in the family and draw near to them, we pray. Lord, let them slow down where the pace of life has been fast as you purposefully had them slow down now. And we do pray, Lord, for healing. Heal little baby Theo now. God, prepare our hearts now as you have been already as we sing and we pray. Prepare our hearts for your word Let us posture our hearts toward your word for your glory and honor. Guard my mouth from error and let us please you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Hope kids, you guys are welcome to head to your class. We're grateful for you guys, grateful for you all in the green shirts that are serving them today. Thank you, Hope Kids workers. Thanks, Robbie, for doing that last song. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, I don't think that's ever happened before. It's okay. I was like, maybe he cut the song. I don't think I'm supposed to be up here. We don't let the kids get out of the building because of what I'm about to say. You'll know when I say it in a second. All right. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. 
He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. I heard one comedian say, it sounds like Santa's a stalker. I'd say even more, it sounds like Santa has been given some attributes that only one has, which is God. All-seeing, all-knowing, but God isn't just looking for little Johnny to mess up and then give him a bag of coal in his stocking. Uh, No, God looks at us with shepherding care, love, fatherly affection. Today, we're going to study Psalm 139. You can turn there. In our Advent series entitled, We Need God. We're going to see both God's personal nature and his pervasive presence today. Years prior to Jesus' incarnation, the Psalms were already singing, praying, and proclaiming God's nearness, God's presence. Many of you will be familiar with Psalm 139. It is a favorite psalm for many a believer because it speaks so clearly of how God knows me. Now, we want to say God knows us, right? We, we don't want to just be like individualistic, which is our temptation of our culture. But this psalm, really, David dives into God knows me. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit and or where shall I flee from your presence If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Here's the overarching theme of today's text. And we're going to get into the entire text today. I just wanted to start with the first 10 verses though. Here's the overarching theme. Our personal God is inescapably everywhere. Our personal God is inescapably everywhere. As we study this passage, I actually had notes in my Bible. Someone preached this passage, I think here, maybe one time. And I just like saw the points they had in my Bible. And I was like, those are really good points. So I'm borrowing someone else's points today, just to let you know, full disclosure. Point number one that someone else had, and I think is really good in adopting today, is God knows me. God knows knows me. O Lord, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. God is personal. He searches us. He has known us. This psalm will will end with verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. So this psalm is bracketed by the pervasive knowledge of God and how he knows all about us. What does God know, you might ask? Verse 2, when I sit down and when I rise. How many of you have smartwatches? I mean, smartwatch people, okay. It knows that you just raised your hand. That was great, okay. Have you ever considered that technology simply starts showing us what God has already known all along? 
So he knows your heartbeat, your steps, your hours slept, what kind of sleep depth you had, your temperature, your calories uh, burned, and everything else. God knows you better than your smartwatch. He does not just know some diagnostic tests about you. He does not just have monitoring devices and intelligence. No, he knows you. He knows what you want. He knows what you fear. He knows what you enjoy. He knows what you think. He knows what you're thinking right now as you're pondering about, does he really know what you're thinking? He knows that. Verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows your thoughts. Yahweh's knowledge is detailed, thorough, and exhaustive. Whether you are sitting or rising, whatever you are thinking, Yahweh is aware. One author notes, there is no moment when Yahweh's awareness turns to other things. God doesn't get distracted and forget you. He does not get bored by you. He does not stop caring for you and the eight billion other people of this world. Yahweh is transcendent, intimate, and unlimited. I remember those first moments as a, a young parent and my first kid. And when you put your first kid down for a nap, you have this weird, awkward feeling like I'm leaving the room, but that kid's there. Like, that kid stays there. I shut the door. Have, you know, we didn't have the video monitors at the time. You guys, luxury parents now. But we didn't have that. So you leave the room, and you can't see what's going on in there. You, have, you feel kind of like, uh, is this going to be okay? So mom and dad leave the room, but God does not leave the room. Yahweh still watches, is still in the room, still knows that child. Verse 3 says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So God knows where we walk. God knows where our life takes us. There are no surprises with God. God knows our work, our commutes, the places we go. James Hamilton says this of verse 3, Yahweh knows exactly how far David, the author, how far David will go when he travels, and exactly how long David will sleep. This leads to David's concluding assertion in verse 3 that Yahweh is acquainted with all his ways. Nothing that David does can be unknown to the all-knowing one. Nothing that you do can be unknown to the all-knowing one. All our ways. God knows all our ways. God knows your sleep or your lack of sleep. God knows the routine you have for work or school, the traffic patterns of the day for your commute. He knows the breaths you will take today and the heartbeats you have. He knows what you will do. But he not only knows our schedules and commutes and our bedtimes, he knows our words, our communication, what we say with our mouths. Look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows all our words. One scholar says, David's future utterances are always present in Yahweh's mind. God knows what you're going to say this afternoon 
or next week or next year. God already knows. He knows all of that. God's not constrained by time. He knows our words before they come out. And that's incredible. It's just hard to even imagine this. Then five and six keep going. You hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Hamilton again says this, Yahweh's comprehensive knowledge and ability to transcend time short-circuit David's computations and considerations, prompting him to confess in verse 6 that knowing Yahweh as eternal and omniscient, as the eternal and omniscient one, confronts him with wonders beyond his ability. These are thoughts exalted beyond his power. Friends, this is beyond our ability. This is beyond our power. The knowledge about God's knowledge is beyond our knowledge. Like it's, it's beyond us. It's amazing when Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, he prays for the people to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Know something that surpasses being knowable. That's, that's Paul's prayer about the love of Christ. It's beyond us. David continues in verse 6. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't grasp it. Friends, here's where we're going. God's knowledge of everything about us should do its humbling work. It should have a humbling effect on our lives. We are known everything. God knows our sin, our thoughts, our perversions, our complaints, our ill motives, our laziness, our time wasted. But that's not the emphasis David has here. David feels the knowableness or God's knowing us is an invitation to all. It's not just the the bad, it's, it's this favor that God has in knowing. This is not God's knowledge being terrifying, but God's knowledge being comforting for his people. Like some of you, if you came from a, a good background and home, you know, you played a sport or you were in a play or something like that, and, and mom or dad are sitting there. They're watching, and you just know that they're there, and they're present, and that means everything to you. They're there. Their presence is important to you. They're there to support you and care for you in your sports or in your theater or whatever it is. They're they're there. That's the kind of image we get. This awe of God is he's there. He cares. He knows us. Verse 7 through 12, then drill down on God's pervasive presence a bit more. In fact, if, if this text is a chiastic structure, we've talked a lot about chiastic structures over the last few weeks, then the central part, most theologians say, is this. This is the part where we see that God is inescapably everywhere. Here's point number two. God is with me. God is with me. Verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David is exclaiming in poetic verse the pervasive presence of God. 
We often call his omnipresence. He's everywhere. And David kind of takes us on a hypothetical um, hide-and-go-seek game. Like, okay, God, you count, God. One, two, you know, and like, we're going to go hide. Nowhere. You can't hide anywhere from God. He knows everything. If you were able to go to heaven, there. In the shield, death, there. And then you even get like the east and west going here. When he says, take the wings of the morning, that's talking about the dawn. Where does the sun come up? In the east. As far as he can see, God's there. The west, if David's writing, the Mediterranean seas in the west. So from east to west, from latitude and longitude, everywhere is God. He transcends limitations. But note this, friends. God is there with a favor toward David and toward his people. Look what it says. Even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Christopher Ashe says this. So this is not just about God being there. It's about God being there for him. Friends, that's important. It's not just about God being there. This is not just about God's presence. This is about God's presence and favor. Being personally present to hold and to guard. And we're going to see several verses from now like, life is not all grand for David. Sometimes I think we read the Bible and we're like, yeah, yeah, they said that. Yeah, 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 that was probably pretty easy. Like in a few verses, David's going to be talking about men of blood that are around him. He's asking God to let them depart. Like you don't have that usually in your neighborhood. Yeah, the, the men of blood are coming after me. No, hard things are going on in David's life. You read about David's life. There's a lot of struggle that happened in his life. And he's saying, he's saying, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Friends, no matter how much difficulties in our life, much suffering, how much suffering is because of our own sin, how far we've gone or how far we feel like God is away from us. He is near is what this text says. He is near you when you run from him. He is near you when you grieve the Holy Spirit or quench the Holy Spirit. He is near to all for whom his son has died. Friends, if you have trusted Christ as your savior, he is near you. How near is God? In Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah is trying to encourage and assure King Ahaz of the nearness of God to his people. He tells Ahaz to not fear the Syrian army that's about to approach them. Then he says to King Ahaz, ask God for a sign of his presence with his people, and Ahaz refuses. So God says that he will give a sign of his presence with his people, and here's what it says in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign of God's presence with his people? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. How do we know about God's presence? Oh, we know even more than what David knew at this time. When Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 in his gospel account, he adds a parenthetical. Emmanuel means God with us. God is with us. God is 
present with us. Matthew is saying in the birth of Jesus, God is present. God makes his presence, presence known to man beyond what man can even imagine. Jesus later says to his disciples that, hey, it's, it's to your advantage that I go away, which we just have to say, if you're Peter or Thomas, you're like, nuh-uh, that doesn't sound very good. That sounds like bad news. You're supposed to bring good news, Jesus. It says, to your advantage I go away. He's going to send another helper that won't be outside of them, but will be in them, will dwell in them, knowing in an amazing way the presence of God. This helper, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit dwells in us who are believers. He's even more present than this idea in Psalm 139 of he's, he's in the land and the sea and the east and the west and heavens and, and the grave. Like he's everywhere. No, now he's in you is what the New Testament says. And we join with David and exclaim in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't attain this. I don't get all this. And then verse 11 and 12. 11 and 12 speak of God's presence when it comes to darkness. And friends, these words are a life preserver for some of us. A life preserver if you're one who struggles with depression and despondency, or you know someone who struggles with depression, these are words you need to know. These are words you need to memorize. These are words you need to cling to. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, this is definitely speaking of daylight and nighttime. God sees all and knows all. But for those who are struggling with the deep inward darkness, the darkness of the soul, depression, friends, you need to know that God is with you in those moments. He sees you. He knows you. He's with you. He knows what's going on beyond what you know when life is foggy and life is spiraling. Christopher Ashe entitles verse 11 and 12, comforting truth. Friends, we need comforting truth when the darkness seeps in. This truth is what we cling to when we feel like darkness covers us. When we feel like we're alone in the darkness, when we feel the spiraling struggle, mental unrest, this text says, no, no, you're not alone. You can feel alone, but you're not alone, says Psalm 139. For he's there. He knows you in the midst of the darkness. The darkness is as light to him. He sees clearly what's going on in your life. Your despondency, your depression, your darkness is as light, and he is with you. And friends, you are not the first one to struggle with this. That's helpful to know, too. I was reviewing John Piper's biographical sketches of John Bunyan, David Brainerd, and William Cooper this week in a book entitled The Hidden Smile of God. Those guys thought of the smile of God hidden. They didn't see it a lot of times. You know, when Bunyan's in jail, 
away from his family. There were times he didn't see the smile of God. Cooper struggled and struggled and struggled for years with depression. Going to John Newton, asking for help and counsel and wisdom and prayer. Friends, many a saint will wrestle, but we wrestle. That's part of it. We wrestle. We wrestle by clinging to God's word, walking by the Spirit, battling introspection, looking outward. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great book. If this is a struggle for you, I'd encourage you to read the book, Spiritual Depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, most of our struggles is that we listen to ourselves instead of speaking truth to ourselves. When we're battling darkness, we're listening to ourselves. We're listening to not truth usually, instead of speaking truth of the gospel to our hearts, speaking the truths and holding on to the promises of Scripture. Let me just give you one text to cling to in the midst of the struggle. Romans 8, verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate you it says, nor anything else in all creation. Just spend time in Romans 8. If you're battling despondency this week or this month or this year, battle with Romans 8. Battle with Psalm 139. Because if nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that means not even depression or anxiety or despondency or grief or sorrow will be able to separate us. Satan constantly wants to share the lie that you're going to be separated from God for those who are in Christ Jesus, that your sin took you beyond this, your darkness took you beyond this. Friends, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's near to you. And friends, let God's word prove this. In verse 11, it says, Surely the darkness shall cover me. That word cover can be translated crushed. Some of you guys who struggle with depression, you felt this. It feels crushing at times. Friends, but let me tell you something. And you're probably like, that's not helpful, Mike. Like, darkness covered me, darkness crushed me. I like the cover word better than the crush word. But let me tell you about this crush word and why I bring it up. The original time that word in the Hebrew was used was talking about there would be a child, a seed of the woman, that would crush Satan's head. That's the crushing the first crushing that's talked about in Scripture is the crushing of Satan's head. And in that crushing, Jesus crushes Satan's accusations. Jesus crushes Satan's condemnations. Jesus crushes Satan's power over you. Jesus crushes the chains that hold on to us in the midst of darkness and release us from darkness and despondency. And friends, if this is the main part in this chiastic structure of Psalm 139, we need to know this. God is with me. And you've got to hold on to that. God's inescapably everywhere with favor toward his people. Favor. Do you think of your life as, as God's favor on you? If you're a believer, it is true. But God's not just starting 
knowing you at your birth or as a toddler. No, God is creator. He's sustainer. And third point, God made me. God made me. Verse 13, you, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 13 can literally be translated. I love this. For you possess my kidneys. Woo! Get a coffee mug with that on there. (laughs) You possess my kidneys. You possess my kidneys. You wove me in the womb of my mother. Here's what David's getting at. God owns David's kidneys, his guts, his visceral impulses. God owns what God creates. At four weeks in the womb, a baby's heart begins to beat 65 beats per minute. God does that. From five to eight weeks, little arms and legs and fingers and toes and eyes are formed. God does that. At 12 weeks, the insides of the baby are fully formed. Circulatory system, urinary system, all there, all formed. God does that. At 16 weeks, the baby's mouth is formed. Child sucks, yawns, and makes faces. Bones begin to get denser. Teeth are formed under the gum line. God does that. By 20 weeks, halfway through the pregnancy, muscles are developing and hair starts to grow. God does that. By 24 weeks, the baby starts to open his or her eyes. Fingerprints develop, and the baby starts uh, hiccuping. God does that. By 28 weeks, the hearing of the baby develops, and they begin to have that cute excess baby fat. God does that. By 32 weeks, the baby starts moving more, and by 36 weeks, the lungs are almost fully developed, and the baby also starts to develop reflexes. God does that. And at 40 weeks, the baby has been fully knit together, all for God's glory, the master artist and craftsman all in the mother's womb, all known by God. And what should this recounting of God's inward working, knitting together, crafting, creating a human do? It should cause us to praise him. Verse 14, the next verse, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God created us with dignity and value and worth. The opposite of fearfully and wonderfully made is carelessly and shoddily made. You know what carelessly and shoddily made is? You ever ordered something on Amazon that you thought looked good in those pictures? You know, and then it comes in the mail and you realize this was like mass produced in some faraway country for very little and I paid way too much for it and it breaks day number two. Shoddily made. We are not shoddily made. Not so with God. He made us fearfully made, meticulously made is how that could be translated. Not mass production, but intricately woven by our creator. Verse 14 then ends, my soul knows it very well. It seems that David ponders this. Ponders how God created him. How often do you ponder No, that baby that we're describing those weeks, you were one of those. Like there was a time in your mother's womb that he was doing that. You. That's that's weird to think about. My soul knows it very well. The truth of God creating David gave a resting place to David. He knows his value and his worth and his identity. It's in God. 
There's a resting place there, friends, when we know God as our creator. Verse 15 and 16 then say this, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Again, darkness is this light to God, so he knows even the womb of the mother, crafting, putting together, made in the image of God. But it's not just God forming you and then leaving you, not like a clock that he winds you up, he cares when you're in the womb, but then sends you out and you're kind of on your own. No, he knows you, all of you. Look at what verse 16 says. This blows my mind. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. What is that saying? God has a pervasive knowledge of every day of your life before it comes into being. He knows you. He knows your kids. He knew your grandparents. He'll know when your grandparents, those kids. Each of your days are written down and known by God prior to any of those days being lived. And friends, that should free us to live fully, to live with faith in Christ, to boldly do whatever God calls us to do for however long God calls us to do it. He knows our days. We can't add to them or take away from them. We can go fully forward in honoring God with our lives. And David finds that deeply encouraging. We should find that deeply encouraging, that we are God's workmanship. We know in Ephesians, created in Jesus Christ to do good works that were formed beforehand for us to walk in. Not that God's figuring it out now, like, what am I going to do? Oh, he chose that way instead of this way. No, he, he chose it all. He knows it all beforehand. In his book were written all of them. God made us. And friends, God making us is so important. This is so foundational. Recently, one of my adoptive children were driving in the car, and he asked me, do people really believe we came from monkeys? I told him, in the United States, that's a pretty common and popular thing taught in schools called evolutionary theory no creator, no God. <clears throat> and if you walk out evolutionary theory to its logical conclusion, there is no purpose in life or in living. There's no hope. It's just this life and then you die, just like a monkey or a rat or whatever animal. So then you should just live life that is now in whatever way you want to live life. Seize the day, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. And life is then all about you, survival of the fittest, what, you, what makes you happy, how you feel, and how you interpret life and truth. It is a large you fest. Like you. And we see this in our country, right? You, 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 you. That's the point. Most people in their little you bubble, or me bubble, I guess, and the logical end of that is hopelessness. Or if you really go to the logical end, those who study philosophy, they hold evolutionary theory in an atheistic worldview, 
many of them, if you read through history, have gone crazy at the end of their life. Why are they in the insane asylum? Because they know the logical end. If life is meaningless, why am I here? Why do I work? Why do I parent? Why do I get up? Why, like, that's what the foundation of our society is right now. And what we think, and just, did God make me or not? This text says God made us. He integrately wove us together. Because, friends, if, if Psalm 139 is true, you have value. You have dignity. You have worth because you're created by a creator. Our text so far has God going overboard and saying that he is personal. He knows me. He's with me. He made me. Point number four, he affects me. He affects me. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Like he just is pondering this. He's like my, my thoughts, like this is just beyond me. The thoughts about who God is and how he works and how he cares and how he made me and what he sees and he knows all my days before written. And like he's just like, all these thoughts are like the sand. There's so many of them. I wake up, God's there. Did you have that thought this morning? When you wake up, God, God's there to greet you. He didn't sleep at all. He was there watching over you. And then verse 19 through 22, then speak of the wicked that come after David. Josh West did a great job a few weeks ago preaching from the imprecatory psalms. This is an imprecatory psalm part. We get a glimpse of, of David asking those who don't keep your covenant, God, need justice, need judgment. And here's what he says in verse 18. If I would, what, sorry, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. I count them my enemies. Another thing you never see on a coffee mug. I've never seen that part of Psalm 139 on like a poster or something. I hate you with complete hatred. Like that isn't going to sell too well in the Christian bookstore. But friends, what is God getting at? And I would just encourage you, because I don't have time to, to have a whole message on this portion. Listen to Josh's message a few weeks ago where he dives in deep about imprecatory psalms that are very similar to this. David is saying, God, they speak against you. These people are out of covenant with you. They deserve your judgment. They hate you, God, and I'm calling for your justice and judgment. Whereas what we see when God talks to Abraham in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, him who dishonors you, you will curse. God curses those who go against him. If they keep desecrating your covenant, may they perish, God. 
James Hamilton notes that friendship with the world is enmity toward God, James 4.4. And so if we realize friendship with the world is enmity towards God, these people are are continuing walking out uh, life against God. And so friends, if we turn this to ourselves, we've got to say this. We don't coddle up to evil. We call evil evil. We don't coddle up to worldliness. We call it worldliness. We don't coddle up to anything that goes against God. What's interesting, though, if you take the next part of the text, Derek Kirner, commentator, notes that David seems to be emotionally zealous and enraged at his enemies, but then he kind of boomerangs it back to himself. And you see kind of this quick boomerang in the next part of the text, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So he's, he's zealous about the enemy, but then he turns it on himself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. The prayer, try me and know my thoughts, can be translated this way. Know my misgivings. Know my restlessness. Know my disquieted meditations. Know my doubts, my unbelief, my dark ponderings. But David is asking not just for God to know him. He's asking for God to purify him. Rid him of this evil. See if there is any grievous way in me. That can also be translated as the way of pain. Friends, the sinful life is a way of pain is what this is getting at. Grievous way. This is going to be pain to me, my family, others, if I walk out this sin. See if there's any of that in me, is what David is praying. The way of pain is the way of the world. It's the love of sin, and it dethrones Yahweh. Friends, verse 23 and 24 are a good prayer for us. We've looked at 22 verses of God's pervasive knowledge of us, that he's inescapably present, and let us humble ourselves and say, God, purify me from the sin that you already knows in my heart. He already knows. It's here. Purify me of sin that Jesus died for on the cross. Draw my heart to worship you. Open my heart to your searching love. God's searching love. God's loving eyes searching us and purifying us, purifying our lives of evil that hurts us and others. So friends, God is a God who knows us, who's with us, who made us and affects us. He's personal. Robbie, if you'll come on up. As we now prepare ourselves to receive that sign and seal of our communion with Christ called the Lord's Supper, Let us consider verse 1, and let us consider verses 23 and 24. Verse 1 says, Oh, you have searched me and known me. Verse 23, 24 are asking God, Oh, search me and know me. He already knows, but there's this invitation of God, purify me. Purify me, because you already know me. Asking God, please, let me not walk in rebellion. Let me be purified by you. When Paul spoke to the church gathered about the Lord's Supper, he says, take time 
to discern the body. It can be translated in two different aspects. One, our own body. Where's our relationship vertically with God? But two, the body this way, our church body. How, how are we doing? There's a discernment there. Asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, if there, is there any grievous way between me and you? Lord, let me be repentant. Let me run to the cross again where there's full forgiveness. Let me run there. Friends, let's do that in just a second. Let's repent where there's sin against God. Is there sin here against other people in our church family? Is there grievous ways we're talking or acting against other people? Friends, it's similar language to Psalm 139. Let's pray for the Lord to examine us. Let's consider anything that hinders our relationship. So friends, let's just take two minutes right now to slow down and pray and ask God, Lord, search me as we remember who he is, what he knows from Psalm 139. Lord, search me. Read through verse 23 and 24 and just make that your prayer as we prepare ourselves to take the elements.